This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Reverse Bug by Laurie Siegel. There was a rustle of people turning to locate the voice that had said, My father went to the American consulate. But it said nothing further, and the audience settled back. The story was chosen by Jennifer Egan, six of whose stories have appeared in the magazine. Her latest novel, which incorporates some of those stories, is called A Visit from the Goon Squad. She joins me today in the office. Hi, Jenny. Hello. So The New Yorker's published 19 stories by Laurie Siegel since 1961, and The Reverse Bug came out in 1989. Did you first encounter her work in the magazine? No, I actually had been at a writer's conference where she was teaching, so I think I had read some of her work before. Uh Uh-huh. When was that? That was in 87, so it would have been just a couple of years before this. But it may be one reason I read her with such interest that I had actually met her and, and sort of knew her as a human being a little bit. And so at that point, did you start reading her stories? I think I, I always watched carefully for hers, but this is really the one that most stayed with me from all those years. And so it was, it was fun to revisit it many years later. Now, the, the main character in this story is called Ilka, and um, she's actually a recurring character in Siegel's work. Siegel's collection, Shakespeare's Kitchen has 13 interconnected stories about Ilka, and her novel, Her First American, also involves Ilka in a slightly different version. There's a lot of Ilka to choose from. <laughs> what is it about this one that stands out for you? Well, I think it, there's an event that happens in the middle of the story that is very shocking and is meant to be, and I think that that particular event was what really stayed with me. I mean, I love, there's a lot of humorous rendering of academia, and Ilka teaches at an institute, and professors appear and reappear, but this particular event is what stayed with me. As you said, Ilka is someone who teaches in an institute, like Siegel herself. She's a European Jewish emigre who escaped the Holocaust. And in this particular story, she teaches English to immigrants, among other things. Is there anything else that you think readers should be listening for as they hear the story? Well, I guess without giving too much away, I I could say that one thing I love about it is that I feel like an intellectual problem is presented early on. And I feel that the story itself is a manifestation of that problem. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's too abstract, (laughs) but I feel like it it comes as close as any fiction I've ever read to making dramatic a very intellectual question. Yeah. So we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Jennifer Egan reading Laurie Siegel's story, The Reverse Bug. Let's get the announcements out of the way, said Ilka, the teacher, to her foreigners in conversational English for adults. Tomorrow evening, the Institute is holding a symposium. Ahmed, she asked the Turkish student with the magnificently drooping mustache, who always wore the Institute's janitorial keys hooked to his belt. Where are they holding the symposium? In the new theater, said Ahmed. The theme, said the teacher, is should there be a statute of limitations on genocide with a wine and cheese reception? In the lounge, said Ahmed. To which you are all invited. Now, Elka said in the bright voice of a hostess trying to make a sluggish dinner party go, what shall we talk about? Doesn't do me a bit of good, I know, to ask you all to come forward and sit in a nice cozy clump. Who would like to start us off? Tell us a story, somebody. We love stories. Tell the class how you came to America. The teacher looked determinedly past the hand, the arm, with which Gertie Gruner stirred the air. Death, Taxes, and Thursdays, Gertie Gruner in the front row center. Ilka's eye passed over Paulino, who sat in the last row with his back to the wall. 
Matsue, a pleasant older Japanese from the university's engineering department, smiled at Ilka and shook his head, meaning, please, not me. Matsue was sitting in his usual place by the window, but Ilka had to orient herself as to the whereabouts of Izmira, the Cypriot doctor, who always left two empty rows between herself and Ahmed, the Turk. Today it was Juan, the Basque, who sat in the rightmost corner, and Eduardo, the Spaniard from Madrid, in the leftmost. Ilka looked around for someone too shy to self-start, who might enjoy talking if called upon, but Gertie's hand stabbed the air immediately underneath Ilka's chin, so she said, "'Gertie wants to start. Go, Gertie. When did you come to the United States?' "'In last June,' said Gertie. Ilka corrected her and said, "'Tell the class where you came from, and everybody, please speak in whole sentences.' Gertie said, "'I have lived before in Uruguay.' We would say, before that I lived, said Ilka. And Gertie said, and before that, in Vienna. Gertie's story bore a family likeness to the teacher's own superannuated, indigestible history of being sent out of Hitler's Europe as a little girl. Gertie said, in the Vienna train station has my father told to me, told me, told me that so soon as I am coming to Montevideo, Ilka said, as soon as I come, or, more colloquially, get to Montevideo. Gertie said, get to Montevideo, I should tell to all the people. Ilka corrected her. Gertie said, tell all the people to bring my father out from Vienna before come the Nazis and put him in concentration camp. Ilka said, in the, or a, concentration camp. Also my mother, said Gertie, and my opa, and my oma, and my uncle Peter, and the twins, Hedy and Albert. My father has told, tell to the foster mother, go please with me to the American consulate. My father went to the American consulate, said Paolino, and everybody turned and looked at him. Paolino's voice had not been heard in class since the first Thursday when Ilka had got her students to go around the room and introduce themselves to one another. Paulino had said that his name was Paulino Patio and that he was born in Bolivia. Ilka was charmed to realize it was Danny Kay of whom Paulino reminded her, fair, curly, middle-aged, smiling. He came punctually every Thursday. Was he a very sweet or a very simple man? Ilka said, Paulino will tell us his story after Gertie has finished. How old were you when you left Europe? Ilka asked to reactivate Gertie, who said, eight years, but she and the rest of the class and the teacher herself were watching Paulino put his right hand inside the left breast pocket of his jacket, withdraw an envelope, turn it upside down, and shake out onto the desk before him a pile of news clippings. Some looked sharp and new, some frayed and yellow, some seemed to be single paragraphs, others the length of several columns. You got to Montevideo, Elka prompted Gertie. And my foster mother has fetched me from the ship. I said, hello, and will you please bring out from Vienna my father before come the Nazis and put him in a concentration camp, Gertie said triumphantly. Paulino had brought the envelope close to his eyes and was looking inside. He inserted a forefinger, loosened something that was stuck, and shook out a last clipping. It broke at the fold when Paulino flattened it onto the desktop. 
Paulino brushed away the several paper crumbs before beginning to read La Paz, September 19. Paulino, said Ilka, you must wait till Gertie is finished. But Paulino read, Senora Pilar Patio has reported the disappearance of her husband, Claudio Patio, after a visit to the American consulate in La Paz on September 15. Gertie, go on, said Ilka. The foster mother has said, when comes home the uncle from the office, we will ask. I said, and bring out please also my mother, my opa, my oma, and my uncle Peter. Paulino read, a spokesman for the American consulate contacted in La Paz states categorically that no record exists of a visit from Senor Patillo within the last two months. Paulino, you really have to wait your turn, Ilka said. Gertie said, also the twins. The foster mother has made such a desperate face with her lips. Paulino read, nor does the consular calendar for September show any appointment made with Senor Patillo. Inquiries are said to be underway with the consulate at Sucre and Paulino folded his column of newsprint and returned it to the envelope. Okay, thank you, Paulino, Elka said. Gertie said, When the foster father has come home, he said, We will see tomorrow. And I said, And will you go, please, with me to the American consulate? And the foster father has made a face. Paulino was flattening the second column of newsprint on his desk. He read, New York, December 12th. Paulino, said Ilka, and caught Matsui's eye. He was looking expressly at her. He shook his head ever so slightly, and with his right hand, palm down, he patted the air three times. In the intelligible language of charade with which humankind frustrated God at Babel, Matsui was saying, calm down, Ilka. Let Paulino finish. Nothing you can do will stop him. Ilka was grateful to Matsui. A spokesman for the Israeli Mission to the United Nations, read Paulino, denies a report that Claudio Patillo, missing after a visit to the American consulate in La Paz since September 15, is en route to Israel. Paulino finished reading this column also, folded it into the envelope, and unfolded the next column, UPI January 30. The car of Pilar Patio, wife of Claudio Patio, who was reported missing from La Paz last September, has been found at the bottom of a ravine in the eastern Andes. It is not known whether any bodies were found inside the wreck. Paulino read with the blind forward motion of a tank that receives no message from any sound or movement in the world outside. The students had stopped looking at Paulino. They were not looking at the teacher. They looked into their laps. Paulino read one column after the other, returning each to his envelope before he took the next. And when he had read and returned the last, and returned the envelope to his breast pocket, he leaned his back against the wall and turned to the teacher with his sweet, habitual smile of expectant participation. Gertie said, In that same night have I woken up. That night I woke up, the teacher helplessly said. Woke up, Gertie Gruner said, and I have thought, 
What if it is even now, this exact minute, that one Nazi is knocking at the door and I am here lying, not telling to anybody anything, and I have stood up and gone into the bedroom where were sleeping the foster mother and father? Next morning, has the foster mother gone with me to the refugee committee? And they found for me a different foster family. Your turn, Matsui, Ilka said. How, when, and why did you come to the States? We're all here to help you. Matsui's written English was flawless, but he spoke with an accent that was almost impenetrable. His contribution to class conversation always involved a communal interpretive act. I studied Atoza Unibashite Inu Munhen, Matsui said. A couple of stabs and Eduardo, the Madrileño, got it. You studied at the university in Munich. You studied acoustics, ventured Izmira, the Cypriot doctor. The war trapped you in Germany, proposed Ahmed the Turk. You have been working in the ovens, suggested Gertie, the Viennese. Acoustic ovens, marveled Ilka. Do you mean stoves, ranges? No, what Matsui meant was that he had got his first job with a Munich firm employed in soundproofing the Dachau ovens so that what went on inside could not be heard on the outside. I made the tapes, said Matsui. Tapes? they asked him. They figured out that Matsui had returned to Japan in 1946. He had collected Hiroshima tapes. He had been brought to Washington as an acoustical consultant to the Kennedy Center and had come to Connecticut to design the sound system of the new theater at Concordance University, where he subsequently accepted a research appointment in the Department of Engineering. He was now returning home, having finished his work, Ilka thought, he said, on the reverse bug. Ilka said, I thought, ha ha, you said the reverse bug. The reverse bug was what everybody understood Matsui to say that he had said. With his right hand, he performed a row of air loops and, pointing at the wall behind the teacher's desk, asked for and received her okay to explain himself in writing on the blackboard. Chalk in hand, he was eloquent on the subject of the regular bug, which can be introduced into a room to relay to those outside what those inside want them not to hear. A sophisticated modern bug, explained Matsui, was impossible to locate and deactivate. Buildings had had to be taken apart in order to rid them of alien listening devices. The reverse bug, equally impossible to locate and deactivate, was a device whereby those outside were able to relay into a room what those inside would prefer not to have to hear. And how would such a device be used? Ilka asked him. Matsui was understood to say that it could be useful in certain situations to certain consulates, and Paulino said, My father went to the American consulate and put his hand into his breast pocket. Here Ilka stood up and, though there were still a good 15 minutes of class time, said, So, I will see you all next Thursday. Everybody be thinking of subjects you would like to talk about. Don't forget the symposium tomorrow evening. She walked quickly out the door. Ilka entered the new theater late and was glad to see Matsui sitting on the aisle in the second row from the back with an empty seat beside him. The platform people were already settling into their places. On the right, an exquisite, golden-skinned Latin man was talking, in a way people talk to people they have known a long time, with a heavy, rumpled man whom Ilka pegged as Israeli. Look at the thin man on the left, 
Ilka said to Matsui. He has to be from Washington. Only a Washingtonian's hair gets to be that particular white color. Matsui laughed. Ilka asked him if he knew who the woman with the oversized glasses and the white hair straight to the shoulders might be, and Matsui said something that Ilka did not understand. The rest of the panelists were institute people, Ilka's colleagues, little Joe Bernstein from philosophy, Yvette Gordeaux, a mathematician, and Leslie Shakespeare, an Englishman, the institute's new director, who sat in the moderator's chair. Leslie Shakespeare had the soft weight of a man who likes to eat and the fine head of a man who thinks. It had not as yet occurred to Ilka that she was in love with Leslie. She watched him fussing with the microphone. Why do we need this? She could read Leslie's lips, saying, Since when do we use microphones in the new theater? Now he quieted the hall with a grateful welcome for this fine attendance at a discussion of one of our generation's unmanageable questions— the application of justice in an era of genocides. Here, Rabbi Shlomo Grossman rose from the floor and wished to take exception to the plural formulation, all killings are not murders, all murders are not genocides. Leslie said, Shlomo, could you hold your remarks until question time? Rabbi Grossman said, remarks? Is that what I'm making? Remarks? The death of six million? Is it in the realm of a question? Leslie said, I give you my word that there will be room for the full expression of what you want to say when we open the discussion to the floor. Rabbi Grossman acceded to the evident desire of the friends sitting near him that he should sit down. Director Leslie Shakespeare gave the briefest of accounts of the combined federal and private funding that had enabled the Concordance Institute to invite these very distinguished panelists to take part in the Institute's genocide project. The Institute, as you know, has a long-standing tradition of debriefings, in which the participants in a project that is winding down sum up their thinking for the members of the Institute, the University, and the public. But this evening's panel has agreed, by way of an experiment, to talk in an informal way of our notions of the history of the interest each of us brings to this question, problem, at the point of entry. I want us to interest ourselves in the nature of inquiry. Will we come out of this project with our original notions reinforced, modified, made over? I imagine that this inquiry will range somewhere between the legal concept of a statute of limitations that specifies the time within which human law must respond to a specific crime and the biblical concept of the visitation of punishment of the sins of the fathers upon the children. One famous version plays itself out in the Oresteia, where a crime is punished by an act that is itself a crime and punishable, and so on, down the generations. Enough. Let me introduce our panel, whom it will be our very great pleasure to have among us in the coming months. The white-haired man turned out to be the West German ex-mayor of Obernpest, Dieter Dobermann. Ilka felt the prompt conviction that she had known all along, that one could tell from a mile, that that mouth, that jaw, had to be German. Leslie dwelled on Doblemann's persuasive anti-Nazi credentials. The woman with the glasses was on loan to the Institute from Georgetown University. The white hair, you see? Ilka whispered to Matsui, who laughed. She was Jerusalem-born Shulamit Gershon, professor of international law and longtime advisor to Israel's ongoing project to identify Nazi war criminals and bring them to trial. The rumpled man was the English theologian William B. Thayer. 
the Latin really was a Latin, Sebastian Maderiaga, who was taking time off from his consulate in New York. Leslie squeezed his eyes to see past the stage lights into the well of the new theater. There was a rustle of people turning to locate the voice that had said, My father went to the American consulate. But it said nothing further, and the audience settled back. Leslie introduced Yvette and Joe, the Institute's own fellows assigned to genocide. Ilka and Matsui leaned forward, watching Paulino across the aisle. Paulino was withdrawing the envelope from his breast pocket. Without a desk? whispered Ilka anxiously. Paulino upturned the envelope onto the slope of his lap. The young student sitting beside him got on his knees to retrieve the sliding batch of newsprint and held on to it while Paulino arranged his coat across his thighs to create a surface. My own puzzle, said Leslie, with which I would like to puzzle our panel is this. Where do I, where do we all, get these feelings of moral malaise when wrong goes unpunished and right goes unrewarded? Paulino had brought his first newspaper column up to his eyes and read, La Paz, September 19th. Senora Pilar Patillo has reported the disappearance of her husband, Claudio Patillo. Where, Leslie was saying, does the human mind derive its expectation of a set of consequences for which it finds no evidence whatsoever in nature or in history, or in looking around its own autobiography? Could I please ask for quiet from the floor until we open the discussion? Leslie was once again peering out into the hall. The audience turned and looked at Paulino reading, Nor does the consular calendar for September show any appointment. Shulamit Gershon leaned toward Leslie and spoke to him for several moments while Paulino read, A spokesman for the Israeli mission to the United Nations denies a report. It was after several attempts to persuade him to stop that Leslie said, Ahmed, is Ahmed in the hall? Ahmed, would you be good enough to remove the unquiet gentleman as gently as necessary force will allow? Take him to my office, please, and I will meet with him after the symposium. Everybody watched Ahmed walk up the aisle with a large and sheepish-looking student. The two lifted the unresisting Paulino out of his seat by the armpits. They carried him reading— the car of Pilar Patio, wife of Claudio Patio, backward out the door. The action had something about it of the classic comedy routine. There was a cackling, then the relief of general laughter. Leslie relaxed and sat back, understanding that it would require some moments to get the evening back on track, but the cackling did not stop. Leslie said, please. He waited. He cocked his head and listened. It was more like a hiccuping that straightened and elongated into a sound drawn on a single breath. Leslie looked at the panel. The panel looked. The audience looked all around. Leslie bent his ear down to the microphone. It did him no good to turn the button off and on, to put his hand over the mouthpiece, to bend down as if to look it in the eye. Anybody know, is the sound here centrally controlled, he asked. The noise was growing incrementally. Members of the audience drew their heads back and down into their shoulders. It came to them, it became impossible to not know, that it was not laughter to which they were listening, but somebody yelling. Somewhere there was a person, and the person was screaming. 
Ilka looked at Matsui, whose eyes were closed. He looked an old man. The screaming stopped. The relief was spectacular, but lasted only for that same unnaturally long moment in which a howling child, having finally exhausted its strength, is fetching up new breath from some deepest source for a new onslaught. The howl resumed at a volume that was too great for the small theater. The human ear could not accommodate it. People experienced a physical distress. They put their hands over their ears. Leslie had risen. He said, I'm going to suggest an alteration in the order of this evening's proceedings. Why don't we clear the hall? Everybody, please move into the lounge, have some wine, have some cheese, while we locate the source of the trouble. Quickly, while people were moving along their rows, Ilka popped out into the aisle and collected the trail of Paolino's news clippings. The young student who had sat next to Paolino found and handed her the envelope. Ilka walked down the hall in the direction of Leslie Shakespeare's office, diagnosing in herself an inappropriate excitement at having it in her power to throw light. Ilka looked into Leslie's office. Paolino sat on a hard chair with his back to the door, shaking his head violently from side to side. Leslie stood facing him. He and Ahmed and all the panelists who had disposed themselves about Leslie's office were screwing their eyes up as if wanting very badly to close every bodily opening through which unwanted information is able to enter. The intervening wall had somewhat modified the volume, but not the variety, length, pitch, and pattern of the sounds that continually altered is in response to a new and continually changing cause. Leslie said, We know this stuff goes on, whether we are hearing it or not, but this... He saw Ilka at the door and said, Mr. Patiu is your student, no? He refuses to tell us how to locate the screaming unless they release his father. Ilka said, Paulino? Does Paulino say he refuses? Leslie said to Paulino, Will you please tell us how to find the source of this noise so we can shut it off? Paulino shook his head and said, it is my father screaming. Ilka followed the direction of Leslie's eye. Maderiaga was perched with a helpless elegance on the corner of Leslie's desk, speaking Spanish into the telephone. Through the open door that led into a little outer office, Ilka saw Shulamit Gershon hang up the phone. She came back in and said, Patiu is the name this young man's father adopted from his Bolivian wife. He's Klaus Hermann, who headed the German Census Bureau. After the Anschluss, they sent him to Vienna to put together the registry of Jewish names and addresses, then on to Budapest, and so on. After the war, we traced him to La Paz. I think he got into trouble with some mines or weapons deals. We put him on the back burner when it turned out the Bolivians were after him as well. Now Maderiaga hung up and said, Hasn't he been the busy little man? My office is going to check if it's the Gonzales people who got him for expropriating somebody's tin mine or the RRN. If they suspect Patiu of connection with the helicopter crash that killed President Barrientos, they'll have more or less killed him. It is my father screaming, said Paolino. It's got nothing to do with his father, said Ilka. While Matsui was explaining the reverse bug on the blackboard the previous evening, Ilka had grasped the principle— it disintegrated as she was explaining it to Leslie. She was distracted, moreover, by a retrospective image, 
Last night, hurrying down the corridor, Ilka had turned her head and must have seen, since she was now able to recollect, young Ahmed and Matsui moving away together down the hall. If Ilka had thought them a curious couple, the thought, having nothing to feed on, had died before her lively wish to maneuver Gertie and Paulino into one elevator, just as the doors were closing, so she could come down in the other. Now Ilka asked Ahmed, "'Where did you and Matsui go after class last night?' Ahmed said, he wanted to come into the new theater. Leslie said, Ahmed, forgive me for ordering you around all evening, but will you go and find me Matsui and bring him here to my office? He has gone, said Ahmed. I saw him leave by the front door with a suitcase on wheels. He is going home, said Ilka. Matsui has finished his job. Paulino said, it is my father screaming. No, it's not, Paulino, said Elka. Those screams are from Dachau, and they are from Hiroshima. It is my father, said Paulino, and my mother. Leslie asked Ilka to come with him to the airport. They caught up with Mitsui queuing with only five passengers ahead of him to enter the gangway to his plane. Ilka said, Mitsui, you're not going away without telling us how to shut the thing off. Matsui said, Ito dozanoto shatofu. Ilka and Leslie said, Excuse me? With the hand that was not holding his boarding pass, Matsui performed a charade of turning a faucet, and he shook his head. Ilka and Leslie understood him to be saying, It does not shut off. Matsui stepped out of the line, kissed Ilka on the cheek, stepped back, and passed through the door. When Concordance Institute takes hold of a situation, it deals humanely with it. Leslie found funds to pay a private sanitarium to evaluate Paulino. Back at the new theater, the police, a bomb squad, and a private acoustics company from Washington set themselves to locate the source of the screaming. Leslie looked haggard. His colleagues worried when their director, a sensible man, continued to blame the microphone— after the microphone had been removed and the screaming continued. The sound seemed not to be going to loop back to any familiar beginning, so that the hearers might have become familiar, might, in a manner of speaking, have made friends with one particular roar or screech, but to be going on to perpetually new and fresh howls of pain. Neither the Japanese embassy in Washington nor the American embassy in Tokyo had got anywhere with the tracers sent out to locate Matsui. Leslie called in a technician. Look into the wiring, he said, and saw in the man's eyes that look experts wear when they have explained something, and the layman says what he said in the beginning all over again. The expert had another go. He talked to Leslie about the nature of the sound wave. He talked about cross-Atlantic phone calls and about the electric guitar. Leslie said, could you look inside the wiring? Leslie fired the first team of acoustical experts, found another company, and asked them to check inside the wiring. The new man reported back to Leslie. He thought they might start by taking down the stage portion of the theater. If the sound people worked closely with the demolition people, they might be able to avoid having to mess with the body of the hall. The phone call that Maderiaga had made on the night of the symposium had, in the meantime, set in motion a series of official acts that were bringing to America, to concordance, Paulino Patillo's father, Claudio Klaus Patillo Herman. The old man was 89, missing an eye by an act of man and a lung by an act of God. 
On the plane, he suffered a collapse and was rushed from the airport straight to Concordance University's medical center. Rabbi Grossman walked into Leslie's office and said, Am I hearing things? You've approved a house on this campus for the accomplice of the genocide of Austrian and Hungarian Jewry? And a private nurse, said Leslie. Are you out of your mind? asked Rabbi Grossman. Practically, yes, said Leslie. You look terrible, said Shlomo Grossman, and sat down. What? Leslie said, am I the hell to do with an old Nazi who is post-operative, whose son is in the sanitarium, who doesn't know a soul, doesn't have a dime, doesn't have a roof over his head? Send him home to Germany, shouted Shlomo. I tried. Dobelman says they won't recognize Claudio Patillo as one of their nationals. So send him to his comeuppance in Israel. Shulamit says they're no longer interested, Shlomo. They have other things on hand. Put him back on the plane and turn it around. For another round of screaming, Shlomo, cried Leslie, and put his hands over his ears against the noise that, issuing out of the dismembered building materials piled in back of the Institute, blanketed the countryside for miles around, made its way down every street of the small university town, into every backyard, and filtered in through Leslie's closed and shuttered windows. Shlomo, Leslie said, come over tonight. I promise Eliza will cook you something you can eat. I want you and I want Ilka, and we'll see who all else to help me think this thing through. We, I, said Leslie that night, need to understand how the scream of Dachau is the same and how it is a different scream from the scream of Hiroshima. And after that, I need to learn how to listen to the self-same sound that rises out of the hell in which the torturer is getting what he's got coming. His wife called, Leslie, can you come and talk to Ahmed? Leslie went out and came back in carrying his coat. A couple of young punks with an agenda of their own had broken into Patio Hermann's new American house. They had gagged the nurse and tied her and Klaus up in the new American bathroom. Here, Ilka began to laugh. Leslie buttoned his coat and said, I'm sorry, but I have to go on over. Ilka, Shlomo, please. I leave for Washington tomorrow early to talk to the Superfund people. While I'm there, I want to get a scream project funded. Ilka? Ilka, what is it? But Ilka was helplessly giggling and could not answer him. Leslie said, what I need is for you two to please sit down, here and now, and come up with a formulation I can take with me to present to Arts and Humanities. The Superfund granted concordance and allowance for scream disposal, and the dismembered stage of the new theater was loaded onto a flatbed truck and driven west. The population along Route 90 and all the way down to Arizona came out into the street, eyes squeezed together, heads pulled back and down into shoulders. They buried the thing 15 feet under, well away from the highway, and let the desert howl. That was Jennifer Egan reading The Reverse Bug, which was first published in the magazine in 1989 and later collected in Laurie Siegel's 2007 book, Shakespeare's Kitchen. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. 
Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Jenny, Siegel is often a very funny writer, and obviously there are some funny lines in this story, but at the same time it takes on this sort of vast wealth of human tragedy. How do you classify this story? Is it is it comedy? Is it What is it exactly? It's my favorite kind of story, which is yeah. a story that does a lot of seemingly um, mutually exclusive things at one time. I mean, it is very funny. It's very intellectual on some level. It's about ideas explicitly. And yet in the middle of it is this kind of crazy unleashing of raw human preverbal emotion. And so I, I love the way that just kind of tears a hole through the story exactly as it tears a hole through the symposium that it's part of. And the fact that all of that can coexist, the gentle um, academic comedy and this strange primordial outpouring, it's a lot to be able to pull off in one story. That's pretty amazing how she does it. I mean, it's not what you're expecting when you start the story and you get these sort of anecdotes of, of immigrant life. Exactly. I mean, I, I love the way the story, I mean, the, the symposium is about the question basically of how to rationalize genocide. And it's followed by wine and cheese. Exactly. <laughs> it was one of the best lines in the lounge or whatever it is. And yet the story basically makes manifest the impossibility of rationalizing genocide by just erupting out basically from underneath or inside the theater, the outpouring makes impossible any conversation about it and actually drowns out all of the voices. I think that's so incredible. It's such a crazy thing to have happen. It's wonderful. <laughs> There's in the introduction to the book, Siegel talks about a movie producer who once told her that, you know, in a good plot, nothing happens that isn't caused by what came right before it. And her response was, you know, I like reading stories like that, but I don't write them because that's not how life happens to me or to the people I know. The mental hunt for happenings and causes produces ever more stories. What if you had a dog who thought ill of you? What if we were forced to hear the sound of torture we know to be happening 24 hours a day out of our earshot? 
So what answer does she give us to that question? Does she give us an answer? What if we're forced to hear this? What, what I think happens? the answer is we couldn't function. We can't We have function. to go into the desert and bury it. <laughs> I mean, I, I love, too, the way she basically enacts a kind of thought experiment, because I think we've all thought about that. I mean, I've certainly thought about it since 9-11. Like, you're walking around, and it's, it's just life as usual down there. Like, people are going to work. And I'll often think, but... But how can that have happened? And yet I can't hear anything. I sometimes I often think of it as something I should hear. And I feel like that is exactly the question she was asking Mm -hmm. and giving us a taste of what it might be like to actually have to hear that and how impossible it would be to go on. I also, as a, as a side note, another thing I loved about rereading this is of course, this all is pre 9-11, way pre 9-11. So for example, they catch up with Matsui as he's about to board a plane. That would never happen now. Are you kidding? You can't catch up with someone who's about to board a plane. You wouldn't get near yeah, exactly. them. They meet him at the gate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so that it brings back in a way this this time of greater innocence in American life, even as it is, in fact, talking about the very same kind of conflict and difficulty that we've had to visit as Americans much more viscerally now than we had then. Questions about torture and morality and, and all of that. It's also a, a reminder that, you know, 9-11 was enormous for us, but Hiroshima and the Holocaust put it to shame on a scale of, you know, the grandeur of the horror. Absolutely. And yet the interesting thing is that one of the questions um, Leslie Shakespeare raises is, what is the difference between those screams? You know, there's there's an effort to try to prioritize them in some way in terms of quality or or sound, and it's very difficult to do that, or I guess categorize them. And I love the fact that, that no screams seem to be privileged here. There's mm-hmm. the sense that on some level, when people are in pain, it all sounds the same. Yeah, it's not a loop, though. Each scream is different. The sense of, of just the scale of it, the enormity of it, that you, you have enough screams taped to last forever. Exactly. I mean, it's very interesting that the sort of moral ambiguity that Siegel plays with here, because I'm never quite sure what we're supposed to think about these characters. Is Matsui a, a villain? You know, he, he did work for the Nazis, obviously. Or is he someone who's sort of championing the victims of these tragedies. And then at the same time, is is Paulino a villain? His father was a Nazi collaborator. Or is he just, you know, a victim whose father was taken from him by, by the forces of history? How are we supposed to think of these characters? I think it's one of the great strengths of the story that it doesn't answer that question. Because I think in a way, to write a, a story in which there are good guys and bad guys, and then screaming erupts in the middle of it, I, I feel <laughs> like that would just be too much. It would feel mm-hmm. like being hammered over the head with a moral. But instead, I feel like what she's interested in is the question of, of pain itself, regardless, ultimately, of what has caused it. And I think she does make the point that, you know, even the bad guys suffer. I mean, that's clear. Yeah. You know, even the torturer screams when when his turn comes. So in a way, it's a very cold aspect of the story that she that she doesn't ultimately create a moral hierarchy. It's also the sense that that even Leslie Shakespeare has no idea what he's doing at the end. Is he doing the right thing by bringing in Paulino's father, whom, you know, is a Nazi collaborator? Are we feeling sympathy for this this dying old man and reuniting him with his son? You know, what is he up to? 
Exactly. And yet when when a couple of punks, you know, tie up this elderly <laughs> man in a, in a in a shiny American bathroom, that's pretty ugly, yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, she invokes the Oristaya. And in a way, I think that if anything, she comes down on the side of pain begets pain. You know, we suffer, we, we retaliate, there's more suffering, and it goes on through the generations. If anything, I think that's where she lands on that point of view. Something that Siegel embeds in this story, uh, particularly in Gertie, is some of the details of her own life, which is that Siegel herself was a child in Vienna who was put on a kinder transport to Britain. She didn't end up in Uruguay. At some one point, she was in the Dominican Republic. But as soon as she got to Britain, she started writing letters and, and writing this enormous campaign of letters to get her parents out of Vienna and eventually was successful in that. How much do you think it could could or should influence how we read the story to know that these sort of kernels of fact of the, about the author have been planted in it? I didn't know that. It doesn't really surprise me. I mean, that is an extremely moving part of the story, which I think really stands out. It's the one time that she hits that very emotional note. She doesn't amp it up, and it's certainly not At the same time, she undercuts it with these constant interruptions from Paulino and Gertie sort of being oblivious to them and going on with this story. Exactly. I mean, that's another thing that I love about it. It's it's doing so many things at once. I mean, she's telling two different stories, and then there's the story of Ilka struggling to, to deal with the two of them, and then there's, you know, the, the actual content of these stories, both of which are really sad. And the fact that it's sad and that the humor undercuts that sadness, to me, is is really achieving two things at once rather than neutralizing either mm-hmm. one of them. It is sad and funny, and that makes it more of both, I think. That's mm-hmm. part of the expertise of it. I just, I love that she's able to do that. I always feel in her work such a sense of, of toughness and humor. And I feel like I can imagine those qualities having helped her all the way along. Now, as you mentioned, this is from an interlocking collection of stories in which Ilka and these characters reoccur. And and you have just written a novel, which is made up of separate narratives in which the same characters pop up in different times in their lives in different places. Were you thinking in any way of Shakespeare's Kitchen when you were constructing it? Not consciously at all, but it's really interesting to read this story again because I feel like at the time that I read this the first time, I was doing work that was very different from this. So it really has a funny sense of circularity to to come upon this now, and I have no idea whether I was thinking of that, but it wouldn't surprise me because I found my way to this story right after finishing this book, and that's probably not an accident. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jenny. My pleasure. Thank you. Jennifer Egan's latest book is A Visit from the Goon Squad. You can hear authors read their own stories in the iPad edition of the magazine, which you can find in the App Store. You can subscribe to this podcast and download previous episodes in the iTunes Store. Just do a search for New Yorker. And let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 